The employee retention credit is a refundable payroll tax credit. Every single organization should at least talk to somebody, have the conversations, even if the exercise leads to determining there's nothing further to pursue, at least we know that we took prudent measures to make the best opportunities for our practice. I'm Corey Brown, and this is Provides the Path to Owning It podcast, where I sit down with trusted industry experts and Provides Network to give you the tools and advice you need to take your practice ownership dreams into your own hands. From owning your own practice to expanding or improving an existing practice, we'll help pave the way for you to achieve your dental or veterinary career dreams and guide you through all the nuances of the practice ownership journey. Please make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. On this week's show, we are discussing the Employee Retention Credit, or ERC, what you need to know to see if your practice qualifies and how to apply. We're very excited to be speaking with Justin Elangin, Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, loan and ERC expert with Aprio. Justin is a CPA and the partner in charge of Aprio's PPP and ERC services. As a national PPP expert, prominent speaker, and strategic business advisor, Justin helps both lenders and borrowers navigate the complexities of the PPP. He also helps his clients realize benefits from other stimulus package programs, such as the ERC, and is committed to strengthening his clients' balance sheets and helping them achieve what's next. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you about this subject. Thank you, Corey. Excited to be here. So we're hearing a lot in the news about different tax incentives like ERC, PPP. Let's just start from the beginning. What is the Employee Retention Credit or ERC? At its core, the Employee Retention Credit is a refundable payroll tax credit. Two keywords there I always mention is refundable and payroll. This is a payroll tax credit, not an income tax credit, and therefore may be able to be utilized by different practices in differing income tax positions. And in your understanding, what was the government's intent for creating this type of credit? It's a great question, one that comes up often. The intent behind the employee retention credit is to support employers who, despite the challenges faced by COVID, chose to keep employees on payroll. Challenges being a broad term, but I know we'll explore some of that in further details. We talk about the mechanics of the ERC. And what are those scenarios where a business could file for the ERC? There's three ways to qualify for the credit. That's really always the starting point is being deemed what the IRS calls an eligible employer. And what that's broken down into is having a, what's called a significant decline in gross receipts, a full or partial suspension in operations or specifically as we look at the third and fourth quarter of 2021 only, there's an opportunity for what's called a recovery startup business. We'll define each of these in further detail to provide some guidance and applicability to the practices that are out there and listening as to how this may be able to be an opportunity to claim some federal stimulus funds. But those are the three elements to qualify for the credit. And important to note, a practice only needs to meet one of those criteria. They are mutually exclusive as we think about how the program guidelines are applied. So let's talk a little bit more about the first one that you had mentioned. What defines a decline in gross receipts? There are a couple components of the program that differ between 2020 and 2021. And a significant decline in gross receipts happens to be one of them. For purposes of evaluating the credit for the 2020 tax year, one is looking to compare is their gross receipts in a calendar quarter in 2020 
compared to that same calendar quarter in 2019. And what we're looking for to begin eligibility is a decline of at least 50%. Where we've seen that apply with certain practices is particularly when you look at the second quarter of 2020, really when you had that first impact of COVID when practices were closed for periods of time. And certainly that looks different depending on the type of practice and the jurisdiction, just based on how the orders were implemented by various jurisdictions and governing bodies. But in that scenario, you'd be looking at second quarter of 2020 and comparing back to the second quarter of 2019. And we're looking at gross receipts. Important to note here, particularly for our practices that are out there, your PPP funds that you received likely also within that same time period are not included in that comparison. When we look at 2021, Congress realized that that 50% threshold was pretty significant. And so what we look at for a significant decline in gross receipts When evaluating the employee retention credit for 2021, we're still comparing a calendar quarter in 2021 and still back to 2019. This is always going back to looking at operations prior to COVID. But what we're looking for in this particular scenario is a decline of at least 20% as opposed to the 50% I mentioned that applies when doing the 2020 comparisons. Thanks for clarifying that. Let's talk a little bit more about the second qualification. What qualifies, I guess, as a full or partial shutdown? So this one is really where you see a lot of diversity in interpretation and application. Reason being, it's subjective. The gross receipts comparison that we just discussed, it's just math. And so there's only so much gray that can exist. But when we get in this full or partial suspension criteria, Unless really you're a restaurant, which that's not what we're talking about here, everything's in the gray. And so it's really about how that this is applied. A full or partial suspension in operations has to do with when COVID-related mandates that were issued by what the IRS refers to as an appropriate governmental authority. And that provides opportunities to be evaluated at a federal, state, or local level. But it needs to be an authority that has the ability to mandate something and has jurisdiction over the respective business or in this case, respective practice. And a full suspension is literally an inability to operate at all. And in some cases, particularly with our dental practice, we may have actually had that. As far as I know, Corey, I know we've had a lot of developments over COVID, but I don't recall teeth cleaning remotely being one of them. And so the opportunity to engage in in in-person activities was really important. And in some jurisdictions, that was completely restricted. And so if there was a complete inability to operate at all, that's what one would refer to as a full suspension. What we see most commonly And likely in many practices in substantially every jurisdiction, but by no means do I want to say all, is this concept of a partial suspension. The partial suspension has to do with when a practice can operate some but not all of its normal business activities. And so thinking about its application to a dental practice, what we see here, if we really kind of do a summary of the timeline of events with COVID, was this initial element of stay-at-home orders, right? That was the first thing that took place, vacate from physical place of business. Now, many dental practices were still able to perform emergency procedures, right? Those still needed to take place. But unless that's all a practice did, that's generally going to be considered a partial suspension because we're only able to do some procedures and those being emergency procedures. When that comes back into play is when we get to a situation in which we're now operating in person 
but maybe we're operating with capacity restrictions or social distancing limitations or no elective procedures. What these elements come together to include is that maybe we had certain operatories that couldn't be put to use, right? I can see less patients during the day, things of that nature. We're not doing elective procedures and the extent to which that's relevant may differ depending on the type of practice and the particular market in which they serve. But in those scenarios, we're again, we're operating, but we're operating at a reduced capacity and not by choice, right? But by requirement. And so that's a really good example of what we see here in a partial suspension and how it applies to a dental practice, at least to a time period in which we're able to resume operations in a substantially similar manner to how we operated in a pre-COVID-like state. Yeah. And speaking from, you know, myself, I was part of a dental practice during COVID when this happened. And in Ohio, at least, it was very unclear as to what an emergency even really meant, right? Like there was no definition from anyone really. So we just kind of did as best we could with that. So I guess I'm wondering, is this what most people qualify on as this full or partial shutdown? Because it seems like almost every practice would qualify for this. Yeah. So generally speaking, I would say that the data would suggest that practices are more likely to qualify under this criteria. Obviously, it depends on some specifics. I used Q2 2020 as an example where we might find a qualification under the significant decline in gross receipts. And by all means, if a practice can achieve eligibility through that test, if you will, we do so because again, it is much more objective than what we're talking about here. Right. It's math, right? That's right. But by and large, what we see here has to do with practices qualifying under this partial suspension criteria. It does get interesting just depending on how they responded, the market they serve, and really where they're located. By way of example, Missouri was a state where the state did not issue many government orders. They did a lot of that locally and at local jurisdictions. And in some respects, as we look at the state of Missouri, there just wasn't a lot of orders that were issued relative to response to COVID, at least not that got to this element of impacting a dental practice. And so what we see here, and this applies differently throughout the course of COVID, which is really important when looking at how to appropriately build a position as a practice to support an eligibility case, is just understanding what applied to you and at what period of time, because what it looked like in California or Corey, in your case, in Ohio, is certainly different than you know what we see maybe by contrast in Texas or in Florida. And so understanding how that comes into play is certainly of significant relevance. But for those practices that were in operations at the onset of COVID, then the partial suspension is the more common path towards eligibility. Let's have you speak a little bit more than on this third option that allows people to file for the ERC that you mentioned. Sure. So uh, you might notice I slightly caveated my last sentence with if you were in operation prior to COVID. What this last criteria provides for is an opportunity for practices that were either started or maybe acquired an existing practice after effectively the onset of COVID. The way in which this is defined, and this is what's referred to as a recovery startup business, is defined as a business that began carrying on a trade or business after February 15th of 2020 and did not have annualized gross receipts for the 2020 tax year of more than $1 million. Those two criteria, if those are each achieved, can provide an opportunity to be eligible without doing gross receipts comparisons, without looking at government orders. Just those two criteria alone can make a practice eligible for two quarters 
in 2021. And just those two quarters alone can yield benefits of up to $100,000. So it's one that we see is certainly overlooked quite often being its newest component in addition to the program after all the other orders had been issued or legislative stimulus packages that were issued was this concept of the recovery startup business. And because it didn't have applicability into the program until the third quarter of 2021, it naturally just didn't get attention until that become higher on individuals' radars. But it's certainly one not to overlook because that can really be pretty meaningful dollars to a practice. Yeah, absolutely. Now, would there be any special considerations for those who started their own practice versus those who acquired an existing practice? So in all cases, and I'll spare some of the details, but I'll at least call attention to something that one should consider, is if they own other practices as well. There's certain rules within the IRS guidelines that may take practices under common ownership. And there's some very specific, so I don't want to say all common ownership by any means, just know that it's out there that when we have common ownership amongst practices, there's an evaluation for what the IRS would refer to as a single employer or entities that may need to be evaluated as if they were one. So that's definitely, Corey, something to be thinking about is if I started a new practice, but I had an existing, that may or may not qualify here because we may have to look at them as one. And therefore, because one existed prior to COVID, that may eliminate the opportunity to leverage this recovery startup model for the new practice. The other one I would mention is the element of acquiring a practice. Often what we think of when we hear the word recovery startup, and when somebody's thinking about startup, I don't believe it inherently associates a situation in which someone acquires an existing business. But when you look at the program and how this is written, if that acquisition is done via an asset purchase, which is most commonly what we see in the dental space, what's taking place is we have a new legal entity with a new federal ID number. And while they may be taking over existing space and existing patient list and customer base, if you will, that entity is new and it just began. And based on the mechanics of how the guidelines are applied, that situation I'm just describing could be considered a recovery startup provided of start dates and gross receipts being under a million dollars when annualized for 2020. I think that's a really big one that is not getting the attention that it deserves. Thank you, Justin, for detailing that out. I agree with you. I think that's something that we haven't heard a lot about. So thanks for exploring that a little bit more with us. Speaking of dental, you know, I'm curious as being a part of a practice during this time, you know, we had disruptions in the supply chain, inability to receive personal protection equipment or PPE. We had to purchase things like increased air filtration systems or any of those expenses. Would that help qualify? Are there any credits for that sort of thing? It's a really interesting question. It comes up often. The short answer from an increased cost perspective, I think that's certainly part of the question there. Increases in expenses are not considered when evaluating eligibility for the program. As we thought about that gross receipts test, again, it's at gross receipts level and debatably should have been included as really much of the impact that was felt by all business types, really, but certainly also within the dental space had to do with the cost factor, right? And what did it do? Just because my receipts maybe maintained didn't mean that my bottom line did the same. But unfortunately, it does not provide for the increased expenses to be considered when evaluating eligibility for the credit. 
but it still sounds like for our dental listeners out there that there are several options for them to look at that would most likely qualify or at least would give them a reason to contact somebody to qualify for this. Justin, thank you for helping us to understand the ERC requirements more clearly. When we come back, I'd like to break down how much this credit can be worth and how our listeners can pursue this. More with Justin Elangen after this short break. Meet the newest reason to finance your dream practice with Provide, the Provide Card, the credit card built specifically for dental and veterinary practice owners. Available in addition to your Provide practice loan, with the Provide Card, you'll be transported to a world of new opportunities for your practice, where you can securely make bulk supply orders and earn tailored rewards on your purchases. You can earn up to 3% rewards on healthcare practice and lab supplies and 1% rewards on all other purchases all the time with no rotating categories and no point expiration. At Provide, we're creating the future of personalized banking for healthcare practice owners. To learn how to apply for your tailored card with tailored benefits, contact your Provide representative or visit getprovide.com slash provide card for more information, including rewards terms and conditions. I'm Corey Brown, and this is Provides the Path to Owning It podcast. We're back with Justin Elangen, PPP and ERC leader with Aprio, to discuss the employee retention credit and what it can mean for you and your practice. Justin, now let's get into the fun stuff. Let's talk a little bit about money. What can an ERC tax credit be worth for healthcare providers? So as we look at the program and what's possible, not what's probable, what's possible, is up to $26,000 per employee. And I'm, I'm sure many of you have seen that or heard that watching something on TV, maybe driving to work as we're seeing a lot of advertisements that take place. The $26,000 and how does that come into play is a product of looking at the different periods for which the credit may be available. There's the credit for 2020, which carries a maximum value of $5,000 per employee. And then there's the credits for 2021. As I mentioned earlier, there are some components of the program where 2020 and 2021 look different. This is a really key area in which that's the case. For 2021, the credit can be worth up to $7,000 per employee per quarter for it's each of the three quarters. Big, big difference. Naturally, here, as we think about applicability, Corey, we went through in detail this concept of full and partial suspension, right? And that's all contingent and driven by government mandates related to COVID. And how did that impact a practice and, and what does that look like in the duration and extent of the impact? As you think about 2021 and you think about the different jurisdictions across the United States, when relying on orders, just depending on the type of business we're talking about, the availability of those orders in 2021 looks different than what it did in 2020. And so while the credit opportunity may be much more significant in 2021, the opportunity under the suspension is probably not as robust as it is in 2020, just naturally based on the cycle of COVID. And those numbers per employee, does it matter if they were full or part-time employees? Is that the difference when kind of calculating the difference in this tax savings? When calculating the credit and identifying how much it may be worth, and I'll add a little bit of context in that, that I think will help it answer that question as well. We're effectively looking at all employees that were paid via W-2 during the period of eligibility. That's that duration of impact, duration of orders, or the number of quarters where a significant decline in gross receipts was met. 
The difference there has to do with what the IRS refers to as related individuals. And we see this come up a ton with dental. A related individual is a family member of an individual who owns more than 50% of a practice. Okay. And so we see related individuals actually quite frequently when we think about its applicability to dental practices. Often, whether it's spouses that may own the business or it may be owned by one individual, and then there are other family members on payroll, those situations may eliminate the opportunity to claim credits just on those individuals, not for the practice, just on those specific individuals. That certainly comes up. But if you take that aside and then go back to the question, Corey, on full or part-time, both can be eligible to have their wages used when doing the employee retention credit computation. Okay. Good to know. That computation, I think is what drives kind of going back to the question about the $5,000 or the $7,000. Those are maximum values, but how do I know where one may fall? The way in which it's applied to determine the credit is effectively a factor of the wages paid. And so for 2020, it's 50% of qualified wages paid to each individual up to $10,000 of wages. And that's how we get to that $5,000 amount. What that does also enable is an opportunity. Let's say that, Corey, you you are an employee of a practice that I'm operating and, and we qualify for the credit. And during the period for which we qualify, you were paid $8,000. Well, I would take 50% of that, assuming it's a 2020 credit. And so that may still be able to generate a $4,000 credit. So it's not a $5,000 or bust situation. It has to do with a maximum amount. For 2021, that difference there, conceptually, our base is the same. We're still looking at qualified wages again in 2021. It's by quarter instead of for the year, but it's 70% of up to the $10,000 of wages paid. And that's how in turn we get to that $7,000. Gotcha. Thank you for explaining that. That makes perfect sense. Once somebody applies to take advantage of this credit, how long can it take for them to actually receive their refund? Probably the most frequently asked question we receive. Of course, right? (laughs) Yeah, of course. Right. When will I see the funds, right? If we go back to the first question, I think you asked Corey, which was what is the employee retention credit? And I mentioned the word refundable. And this is where you see that come into play. This really is a situation where the IRS will send a check. And depending on the number of quarters claimed, there may be multiple checks that come into play as they don't aggregate the total refund amount and disperse. What we're seeing, and this is always an evolving conversation, is around timing of disbursement of those refunds. Really important item to note has to do with the size of the credit. Credits that are being claimed, and that's an individual quarter being filed for an individual tax entity. That's how this is identified. Those claims that are happen to be in excess of $200,000 are required by the IRS to go into a second level of review. So let's know that there's going to be a bifurcation between those claims under $200,000 and those that are greater than $200,000. For those that are not requiring that second level of review, we're generally seeing refunds being dispersed three to six months from the time in which the employee retention credit is claimed. For those that may be in excess of the $200,000, It's been closer to seven to 10 months for the timing in which those refunds are being processed and dispersed. Notably, I think it's probably a good opportunity to mention just what are we seeing? Having worked with thousands of dental practices and claiming these credits and thinking about these numbers, 
The average credit that we've assisted a dental practice in claiming is right about $75,000. So when applying that and thinking about timing, that $200,000 threshold really is going to come into play when we're really talking about several locations that are in play to exceed that $200,000 for a particular quarter when we're claiming the credit. So for the vast majority and what I would expect, Corey, being represented within the audience is they're under that threshold. So this is an opportunity to cash in on some stimulus dollars in addition to the PPP funds that were received, in addition to the provider relief funds that may have been received from HHS. This is a third opportunity to claim credits and that could be in the bank account within three to six months from the date of filing. So great opportunity, one to explore, certainly before we see the timeline for claiming these credits sunset. And you mentioned sunsetting, and that's where I was going to next. Is time of the essence here for somebody who wants to file for this ERC tax credit? There's certainly a timing component. We're currently in a position, and as is anyone on either side of the equation, whether being the employer claiming the credit or an organization like an APRIO who's helping support an entity in claiming the credit, in understanding what opportunity we have to go back and retroactively claim the credits. That's how these are done. They're all retroactive claims. You heard me mention 2020 and 2021. But certainly there's a timeline that exists within the program, and that has to do with the statute of limitations being placed on the associated tax forms that we're actually going to go back and amend to claim the credit. That statute of limitations is three years. And so what that means as it relates to timing here is the earliest period that an employer can go back and claim the employee retention credit for is the second quarter of 2020. And when we apply the statute of limitations to figure out, well, where does my expiration date, if you will, come into play? That's going to be July 31st of 2023. Every 90 days, another quarter will also in turn expire. So as we think about it here, it's early 2023. Have I missed the window? Certainly not. Do I need to act tomorrow? Maybe, maybe not. But if I put this down for three, four, five months, then certainly we're going to find ourselves in a situation where that opportunity is going to have come and gone. So if there's certainly an action or a call to action here, Corey, when we, as we think about that, this is a great way to say, put it on the radar, put it on a near term list, keep it somewhere near the top and have the conversation with somebody that is informed and educated and a trusted advisor to your practice to understand what's here, because it is certainly a situation where we don't want to look back on after the expiration period has closed and realize, I think that does apply to us, but yet have no opportunity to take any advantage of the program. That's great advice. Again, as someone who's worked in a practice, quarter one or January is usually a pretty busy time. People have renewed benefits. You know, they're coming back in to finally get procedures done. Doctors are busy, right? So how much time do you think a healthcare provider should set aside to prepare all of this information that's needed to file a claim? That's a great and loaded question there, Corey. <laughs> I'll use the opportunity to speak to two components here. Let me start with just words of caution. This is really to spread awareness of what's just out there in the market. And this isn't coming from Aprio. This isn't coming from me personally. In fact, if you look this up, you'll see this coming from the IRS just two months ago. This was in November where the IRS issued a press release warning practitioners, warning businesses of what I'll call ERC chop shops is how we refer to them. There's a lot of businesses that have entered the market over the last two years in particular. And that's generally who we may be seeing advertising on TV or on the radio, or you see it on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on other social media. 
those that are advertising to say how fast they can get it done may suggest the level of diligence that's being applied. And I'll certainly leave that to our listeners' discretion here, but just some words of caution that I think are probably important to mention as we think about time that one may contribute to the process. And particularly when noting that the claim of an employee retention credit is being submitted to the IRS. And like any other form submitted to the IRS, it's subject to audit. Something to consider when going through that and ultimately figuring out the time and investment and volume of information to furnish when making a claim. Our approach and how we would advise one look at it, whether it's with an APRIO or their other trusted advisor, is to manage the process under the assumption that the burden rests with you and your advisor on proving to the IRS why you're eligible. This information doesn't get submitted to the IRS up front but it would need to be furnished in the event of an audit or other IRS inquiry were to take place. And so plan for the worst. You may never need that information, and we certainly hope that you don't. But in the event that that were to surface, you'll be really glad you did. And so when we think about time investment, it probably looks a little bit different, I think, based on the nature of the relationship and what a practice may be seeking with an advisor. But as we think about this program, there's some time to make sure that we've identified what the true business disruption was and how one was impacted, really being able to draw out the cause and effect, assuming a suspension here, Corey, cause being the issuance of government orders, and then the effect being, well, what did that mean for my practice, right? If I had to close down two chairs to manage and comply with capacity or other social distancing requirements, I probably saw less patients. Well, what do I have to support something of that nature. If I have appointment logs or waiting lists or other things like that, that would be some further evidence that is more than just a really good story, but something to back it up. Yeah, I think the extent of where that comes into play really has to do with risk mitigation and risk tolerance. And so time investment looks different, certainly from one practice to another, but I would say relative to the value, it's really great use of time. Definitely. Next to a potential audit, would you say there are any other risks to claiming this credit or attempting to claim this credit? Something we look at often is risk, right? I think with anything that we do, any decision we make, there's some element of risk. It's just a matter of does it fit within our tolerance and what mitigating factors can we put into place to manage those risks to an acceptable level to move forward or identify that we can't get to that point and hopefully don't move forward if that's where we fall. The audit's certainly there, right? I think the implications are probably twofold that can come into play. There's the event of an audit and any time, whether that's directly by a practice or a practice owner or cost associated maybe with an outside provider to defend the practice should an audit occur. And in many organizations, providing audit defense and representation as part of their scope of ERC service. That is certainly something that we do here at Aprio. And I know that there are others that are doing that as well to help protect that risk for a practice. The other side of it just has to do with what I'll call cash management. We get a refund from the IRS. Yay, we now have another $100,000 in the bank. Should the claim be audited and what I call disallowed in whole or in part, and maybe there's some element of having to return a portion of those funds back to the IRS is, do you have the capital to do so? And then there's a, obviously a variety of cash management strategies that can be applied, but I would certainly put that on the list of considerations. It has to do with just what takes place to manage cash flow. Should the IRS not agree with their position? Again, this is quite a subjective component of the program. And so do they come back with a different interpretation? 
time will tell, but those are the two things I'm giving consideration to as management or a practice owner as to how do I manage my risks in going through this process and determining whether or not I should be moving forward. Yeah, that's a really valid point. Are there any special considerations for those who are also filing for PPP forgiveness? Certainly there are. I would mention it from the perspective of it does not impact whether or not a practice is eligible. And I think that's a really, really important item. The employee retention credit was born out of the CARES Act, just like the Paycheck Protection Program was. From March 27th of 2020, all the way until the Consolidated Appropriations Act was signed into law on December 27th of 2020, a recipient of a PPP loan could not claim the employee retention credit. And so naturally, the employee retention credit just didn't get a lot of attention because there was no freer money than a PPP loan. It didn't have to be paid back if spent properly, and it wasn't taxable. And in the event that one did pay it back, it was at a really low interest rate. So there was this nine-month window where a recipient of PPP could not claim ERC, and then it changed and again, applied retroactively. So a consideration now is, okay, I received a PPP loan. I want to evaluate the employee retention credit. What do I need to be thinking about or giving consideration to? In a nutshell, the way that that's broken down is you can't use the same wages to calculate the credit as you used to request forgiveness on a PPP loan. So think of it this way. They don't want you to double dip to leverage multiple government programs on the same dollars. And so that often falls to, let's call it the ERC service provider for lack of a better term here, but whatever organization or advisor is assisting a practice through claiming the ERC, generally this burden or this complexity or nuance will fall on that group of individuals or team to help understand the bifurcation. But the most important component here is if you received a PPP loan, forgiven or not forgiven, It is not going to impact whether or not your practice could or should evaluate eligibility for the employee retention credit. I think that's the big takeaway there. Thank you for clarifying that. How would you suggest a healthcare provider confirm that they're eligible for the ERC? First, start with a trusted advisor and see what their understanding is. See if they believe this program is right for you. See if they have experience with the program. And in many cases, what we've seen, certainly, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of new companies entering the ERC marketplace. It may be worthwhile to get more than one opinion, not impacting or suggesting that one not go to their trusted advisor. But if you've had a conversation with another group that maybe have recently formed, I'd encourage getting at least a second, if not a third opinion, just to have something to compare and contrast. There's generally been some notable differences between an approach and one maybe just feels better when having a conversation with one group versus another. And sometimes we just have to trust our instincts. But start and have the conversation. This is one that that we talk about every day that says every single organization should at least talk to somebody to determine whether or not this applies. Again, there's going to be a period of time here in roughly six months from now in which the opportunity to claim the credit will start being limited in nature and and start expiring. Have the conversations, even if the exercise leads to kicking the tires and determining there's nothing further to pursue. At least we know that we took prudent measures to make the best opportunities for our practice. Absolutely. And for listeners who would like Aprio to help them or maybe give them a second opinion, how can they reach you? Best option is actually going to our website, Aprio, A-P-R-I-O.com. You'll see a number of areas to connect with our ERC team. And with about five pieces of information, 
You can submit a form and have the opportunity to schedule a free consultation with one of our ERC specialists to understand the program further, understand your situation, and apply the facts and circumstances that relate to your practice and what that may mean for eligibility. Well, Justin, we appreciate you sharing your expertise on this topic. It sounds like this could be a huge incentive for our listeners who qualify. So thank you for sharing this valuable information with us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Path to Owning It. If you are ready to take your practice ownership dreams into your own hands, be sure to visit getprovide.com to pre-qualify and browse our practice marketplace or check out our news page for more helpful resources. The Path to Owning It is brought to you by the team at Provide with production assistance from Sarah Parkey and Slide9 Agency. And it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Producer Dusty Weiss, editor Larry Kilgore III. For Provide, I'm Corey Brown. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Provide is a division of Fifth Third Bank National Association. All opinions expressed by the participants are solely their current opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Provide, its affiliates, or Fifth Third Bank. The participants' opinions are based on information they consider reliable, but neither Provide, its affiliates, nor Fifth Third Bank warrant its completeness or accuracy and should not be relied upon as such. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute the rendering of legal accounting tax or investment advice or other professional services by Provide or any of its affiliates. Please consult with appropriate professionals related to your individual circumstances. All lending is subject to review and approval.